ATV Talk, the podcast. Sit down with your host industry professional, Leonard Duncan, as the men and women from the ATV world bring their behind-the-scenes stories to life. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Green Ball Corp, has been producing industry-leading tires for ATV side-by-side market for over 25 years with tires like Mongrel, Dirt Devil, TerraMaster, XC Master, Dirt Commander, and Groundbuster. They have a tire for your application. Top racers from GNCC, Works, and Best in the Desert rely on GBC Power Sports tires. So why shouldn't you? Go check them out at gbctires.com to see the full line of tires they offer. Thank you very much. TPR Stabilizer, a leader in steering dampener technology, brings you the new Q5 Sport ATV Dampener with better control and handling with an upgraded vane and seal system. Go check it out today, www.gprstabilizers.com or call 619-661-0101. Don't forget to tell them ATV Talk Sandy. Well, everybody, it's an honor and a pleasure. We have Gary Denton, the eight-time national champion, with us today. And, Gary, it's an honor and a pleasure for you to take the time out of your busy schedule to talk with me. Um, Thank you so much. And, you know, I told you this story before, and I'm going to tell you again. My first big race that Lauren took me to back when I was a Greenhorn uh, I believe it was Anaheim, California and Mickey Thompson. And the first professional that came up and spoke to me was you. That's crazy. You shook my hand, treated me like I was somebody. And, um, ever since then I've admired the hell out of you. I think you are just the epitome of what a professional is supposed to be. Thank you for that. I had no idea. I mean, I like engaging with people just in general. I, I, you know, when we were racing, you couldn't do that so much because you had to have the eye of the tiger. I tried to do as much as I could, but you really, in a sense, I admired all my competitors, but you had to, in, in a sense, hate them <laughs> to beat them. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Yes. It does. Yeah. But I, I just wanted to, to get that out of the way so I can, you know, the, the school girl, school girl crush, let's just get it out of the way. And that's the coolest thing when I, when I think about that, I mean, think about how, I, how many years ago that, I mean, I'm old now. I mean, and you're older also, I, I think about that, uh, 1990, you said it was, uh, 90, somewhere around in there. Yeah. So 30 years ago. Right. So when you look at that, that's amazing. Um, I, you know, I look at racing and I think about it. I think how, and I was talking to Wayne Henson the other day and I was, we were talking about how racing was our whole life and really Henson racing was founded off and need to not blow up clutch baskets. And that's all he was trying to achieve at the time. And time was Rod Emery and I, and, and they were blown up other competitors as you're aware of. And 
And I didn't know, I was oblivious to it, but he built steel baskets and that's what we ran. And from there out, we ran, you know, the new alloy uh, models that he built. And, and then he founded that company into this, this metropolis really bitching business. And I think it's the coolest thing ever, you know? And I remember going to see Mitch Payton and Mitch goes, no, nah, I don't need any of those. And I've known Mitch forever, pro circuit. And uh, a couple of years later, he says, hey, you got any of those clutch baskets for dirt bikes? Wayne said, sure. And the rest is history. How cool is that? Exactly. I mean, it's, yeah. it's incredible. Uh, you know, we've always spoke. I mean, it, Lauren's always spoke highly of Wayne. And yeah. even even if, as Hinson was growing, you know, it was a mutual or a respect thing there. Um, yeah. Trust, I've tried to get Wayne on the show and, and they're so busy and they're all over the place. It's, it's kind of like trying to get you. I've been chasing you for seven months. Well, I apologize for that. I, my fault. Uh, we, we had, I had a Wi-Fi issue and we couldn't get it together. And so now here we are. And the Wi-Fi companies, I have two in my area, in my town, Chino here. And when they're out, you got nothing. Right. You know, where technology is really cool. I mean, you and I are looking at each other on a Zoom meeting and talking for a show. And I think that's cool. Um, but when it goes out, it's done. <laughs> so exactly. good in some ways and oh, well, good in a lot of ways and not so good when it, it cancels you, right? Exactly. Hey, I want to ask you some questions about your beginnings, because not a lot of people, especially a lot of the younger people, know about your beginnings racing. Um, most people don't realize that you had a career racing motorcycles before you started racing quads. Yeah, no, I, at age 14, I raced, I rode, well, I raced motocross, motocross and I started riding when I was about 12. And my first race, I was 14. A few months later, I was 15. And in a year and a half, I was a pro motocross. I raced my first pro, first pro race um, at 16, I guess it would have been. Uh, and I got hurt. Back then, we used to have three motos and, and dirt bikes. And, and I won the third, I won the second moto and I was trying to win the third at the start, trying to get the whole shot as usual. And I, uh, I crashed. I went sideways off the jump. There was a rut. A lot of guys, great racers like Mike Bell and guys like Cliff Letton. There's a whole bunch of other ones, famous guys. But uh, they, I, I woke up uh, in the ambulance, broken pelvis, bruised, damaged spleen. And it, it set me way back. And about six months later, I won a pro race. And took me a long time. I was anemic and the technology with the doctors wasn't as good. And, and then I went on one the night Nash, CMC night nationals, which is a big thing. And I was a local hot shoe pro, um, in 81, 82, in 81, I got 10th. I got uh, 1980. I got hurt again, really bad. I was trying to get fast again. And, and I won a lot of local races, almost won a national in 78, but in 80, I was hurt all year. And it's 81. I got 10th in the nation, 125 nationals. Danny Magoo Chandler got top privateer at ninth. Now think about that. And Magoo was like a seventh, eighth place. I think that year he finished fifth one time. That's how fast the works bikes were. They were unbeatable. Uh, probably seven, eight seconds a lap faster. The next year I got seventh, top privateer, and got a little faster because I'd been hurt, you know, in 80. And 81, I got 10th. And the next year I got seventh. And Hannah got six. That, they were stacked classes. They were not easy. Right. Uh, both those guys went on and got on Hondas and won the world, but and neither were hurting for speed. They were the guys. So when I got into quads a few years later, 
I was blessed because there was there was no works bikes. People don't know they don't have any idea what a works bike was. They've outlawed them. A lot like they have in the pro ATV thing. Right. You know, no frame right. bikes. So there really was production based, it was readily available. And in our deal, in our era of ATV racing, frame bikes didn't come until later. I, I'm trying to think back when we started riding them. So probably 1990-ish. You know, I started using the first Lager chassis. Could have been 91, 90 or 91, somewhere in there. I think I think the first Lager was closer to 92, wasn't it? I don't know. I you know I'd have to look at photos. That'd probably tell me the most out of the magazines. But I thought I thought it was like um, L.A. Coliseum. It could have been 91. Yeah, you could be right. I, you know, I want to say 91. And 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 even then, I went to a. Uh, I had an I had a RM I had an RM125 linkage. Such a rising rate that your rear suspension and so that leverage ratio curve was not as good as the CR500, which was later. And Henson always went, but it's so blessed to have Wayne Henson. I'm going to go back really quick. I was, without him, there was no eight time champion. I mean, he really supported me monetarily. Uh, he grounded me. He was there with me by my side, testing all this stuff. And so I owe the whole Henson family, Arrow's wife, Carol, for lending Wayne to me for all that time. And his kids, Ronnie and, and Brian, for loaning me their bikes and machinery and their their father. So Henson family gets top kudos. But but Wayne wanted me to go back to Wayne. He wanted me to do uh, the the CR five hundred, and I go, Nah, man, I'm good, I'm good. And I started looking at videos and stuff, and I noticed that he was always worried about the bike bike hitting the bottom of the ground, and I realize this i went out and started doing suspension testing and at, at the end of 93 for 94 and it was incredible how well that bike handled so when i raced the 94 season i had a phenomenal motocross machine it was you know we always worked on tt a lot tt changed a lot over the years too because they when they went from hoosiers to mercury's just about I shouldn't say that this is going to be a blanket statement, you know, but just about anybody could ride TT in a sense. It, it, and that's, that's, that's just stereotyping it. And that's not, not so, but what it means is that the tire conformed to the track, whereas the Hoosiers are like riding on hockey pucks, if that makes sense. The carcass <laughs> was so tough that if you didn't have chassis set up, you couldn't hide, you couldn't hide the factors that were, that were there. And what I mean by that is if you had a nail handling bike, you you were not going to get around the track very well. So bike setup, whether you needed wider or more squat or torque motor, all of it was really a big deal. And ride height and all those variable things. So when they went to McCurry's, guys that went, didn't go that fast hauled ass. They were on it. So it changed the sport a lot. And then later in TT, you had – Shane hit Greg Baker was the guy that showed everybody. Well, him and Shane, Shane went up and hung out with him and they were they. you know, it's not cheating unless you get caught. Right. <laughs> and, and, and I'm not calling them cheaters. So let's not get blow this up, but they were juicing the tires because the sprint cars guys juice tires. And what that does to you is it gives you tractability and we never ventured there, but I can tell you, I could go into a corner, well, I don't know, dive in. Like we were in Loretta Lenz, a shitty motocross slash, slash TT corner. 
I could dive in 20 feet further than Greg Baker and we come off the turn and the guy would be passing me. <laughs> I mean, that's how much more entry speed I had. Okay. But not saying he wasn't, he wasn't a great racer. He was not taking anything away because he was smarter than I, he knew how to juice the tires. He was, he was in essence, uh, putting it on me in some cases, if that makes sense in the TTs toward the end there. So those things made a big difference. And I don't know if you even are aware of that. You probably are now, but back well, then, I don't know. We were talking about compounds to put on the tires, um, bagging the tires, uh, you know, getting changing the compounds with all of these different things. And, and this is all stuff that happened on the West Coast, um, prepping, you know, thinking about doing it. We actually never followed through with any of it. Yeah. Um, but we were what we were preparing to test it on the West Coast. Um, why it never came to fruition, I'm not sure. I think something had to do with cost. Um, and I believe that really there was a stopping point for it. And, you know, Lauren was always ultra conservative and never wanted to be caught cheating. And he believed yeah. that if we did it, we would get caught cheating. Yeah, yeah, I know. And be and be tarnished forever. Yeah. And and he never wanted that. So uh I believe yeah. he had me stop doing all that testing. But yeah, I was I was always in looking into different tire systems and and the ways to make the tires work better and balancing and lightening and and all of that. Uh, yeah. Well, it, it, it changed the face of the racing. It, it, it made it really, it, it's the, the sprint car guys do it all the time. It's, it's pretty common knowledge nowadays, but back then it was, it was fairly new. Sprint car guys knew it, but ATV guys didn't know it. Uh, like I said, those, you know, Greg was near, he was in Iowa with a big sprint car deal. Like I said, he was a great racer. I'm not taking anything away. Uh, I'm not saying as a cheater, <laughs> But he was doing some shit that helped him a lot. Let's just put it that way. And he was great at setting up his machine and he was an excellent rider. He won a lot of races and just flat put it on us. You know, no two ways about it. I remember the first time I got to see him ride was uh, Boyd, Texas. Mm -hmm. And uh, Shepard was riding for us at the time. And Shepard was killing it but he had a broken collar. He was four days off of a break on a collarbone. Uh-huh. And when you come down that back straightaway into that 90 degree left-hander. Oh yeah. Collarbone broke again. Oh God. Yeah. That's a lot. You're whipping the thing. Actually the guys in Boyd raceway, my kids track, they taught us like, you know, Gary kid. And there were some couple other guys who get their name Barker. The, yeah. The, yeah. The 500 guy. They, they would come down and they would get, I don't even know, like a hundred feet before the turn and they'd whip the thing sideways to scrub speed. They were gnarly fast and they taught me. And I, holy shit, they're doing it. I can do it. So I started doing it. You know, we were, we were going around there. Like they used to have, I don't know. Well, a lot of people don't know this because it's illegal everywhere now, but they used to oil the tractor. So, and when you do practice during the day, it'd be heated up and, and the oil, would be slick so your bike would work really crappy and and then when the sun, the, the sun went down that oil that was in the track would tack up and it'd be not like asphalt better than that like a gummy tire you know it was bitching and you could just oh 
the tractability was phenomenal. Nothing like Boyd Raceway to go out there and flat, pitch it in a corner, come off on a full lock wheelie and blast down a straightaway. It was incredible. That's that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Marty was telling me a story about going there and being scared to death because the local guy goes yeah. down the straightaway, doesn't make the turn, goes through that wood fence and then comes back through the fence headed oh. down the straightaway. Well, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no. People were crazy. Oh, yeah, no, I could see that. I, And you know what's amazing? I look at the history of Suzuki versus Honda and vice versa, and Chuck Miller's a real good friend of mine. And back in that the day of the Honda attitude, you know, it was it was the way, and I'm not, you know, Chuck had to conform to that. And I, I love the guy. Uh, I look at the riders, and they used to always sneak around, you know, like Stevie Ryder, Marty, and Chuck. They would, and, and, and when I look at McCoy, Wes was actually really cool away from racing, but he's so hardcore when he was at the track. I could win and smoke all the Honda guys, and people loved it. They People got to where they didn't dig the Honda team because of the Honda attitude thing, you know, because Wes wanted to win no matter what, because they were spending millions of dollars. You know, they had four riders and four box fans and, you know, so on and so forth. And, and uh, I get it. And here's a squid like me showing up in a little white van off in the middle of nowhere and riding a Suzuki and winning. And so the fans loved it. I, I you know, I guarded a lot because I was indifferent and, and unique in that sense. But um, it was cool. I used to love those conversations with Stevie Ryder Miller. They would sneak over. Hey man, what's going on? How are you? And we're all buddies, you know, we want to kill, you know, we wanted to beat each other. So when Chuck Miller went over to Suzuki and, and worked for Rodney Gentry in 87, we were all supposed to have the same stuff. Well, you know, you guys acquired Turner Racing, so Paul Turner. So Miller was good friends with Turner, and they had this bitch and trick pipe. So anything that one rider had, the other rider had to have access to. So we're at the shop, the race shops, factories, you know, team, and we're there, and I go, whoa, what's that, Mill? And, and and he goes, oh, it's just a new piper trying this bitchin'-looking, hand-combed, trick-looking pipe. And we had clem pipes, which were good, but they weren't – they didn't look like that thing. It looked like a weapon, right? He goes, I go, man, that thing looks cool. And he goes, I go, can I try it? And he goes, yeah, sure. What's he going to tell me, right? <laughs> so I get on the bike and I ride around. He's like, well, that thing's bitching. I want to try one. Can I get one? He goes, uh, yeah, sure. And I was always messing with Mill. <laughs> Chuck Miller, I call him Mill, right? And, and so you got to understand that years earlier when he was working for Han and he was Stevie Wright's mechanic, he had a, a Ram bumper on the front, you know, a bumper guard in the front of the quad, the Honda quad. And I'd gotten a flat and I, I, Stevie was ramming into me in the corners. I probably got the flat off a jump, but I told Miller it was him that did it, you know, that, that this Ram guard. So I, and I was convinced in my mind at the time, so I went and got some light. <laughs> this is funny shit. I got some, some, uh, you know, you could have, if you look at the, at the, at the Mickey Thompson rule book, it says, yeah, you can have light brackets, but they just got to be rounded. So I went and got some, L brackets that were long and they were made out of aluminum. I had them bent and I had bolted them onto the front of the quad so they could literally ram his quad. And I had them on there and I got the magazine guys there. So the national few weeks earlier where I got a flat tire was taken out of the race, whether it was me or Stevie, I was in my mind, it was them. Seriously. I was, I, there was actually a, 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 a uh, scratch inside the in part inside the rim. So 
I don't know if it was him or not, but I was mentally there. So I said, well, this is BS. So the way the their bumper was, it was protruding outward and you could hurt the other bike. So I, uh, I said, look, I told the magazine guys, check this out. And they go, what's that? And I go, I'm going to ram the shit out of Stevie. And I was, I was pissed off about it. So even though I liked him, that's one thing, but off the, on the track, I'm taking you out. You know what I mean? So remember I, this all happened in Raleigh, North Carolina. Now we're out at the Rose Bowl. So they magazine guys are all part of this. They go over and tell Miller and they've got Ogilvy there and Ogilvy has to come over and they're looking at the bike and they go, how does it work? And I go, look, you see, these things are rubber. They move. And, and I had them all in an uproar. Miller goes, okay. Mill goes, okay. What if I put the stock bumper on her? Are you going to be happy? You take these brackets. I go, yeah, I'll do that. So it was a big magazine deal. I was always creating controversy, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Uh, and and would, <laughs> would it have worked? Would mine have or would theirs have? Would yours have worked? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it would have worked in one sense. It, it was going to be intimidating as hell. So I'd already told the mad guys. The mad guys ran right out of the Honda. It, it worked already. I already had him psyched out. You, you see what I'm getting at? Oh, yeah. A lot of it's, you know, a lot of people don't realize this. You can have all the talent in the world, but the reality between winning and losing, and I'm holding my fingers up, there's no, there's no distance there. It's so little you can't tell it. And what I mean by that, if you're mentally off a little bit, you'll go slow. And slow is not much different than fast, if that makes sense. But it's poor, it, it's poor performance on the track, that's for sure. So that's the way it is. Let, let, let's get into that a second, if you don't mind. Sure. You won eight titles in a row in an era when I think that the deck was actually stacked anybody could win on any given day and where i'm going with this is do you believe that your mental preparedness beat them or your machine prep i always call it everything because you know few things on the bike few things training working out men mental preparedness if you uh, preparation if you look at those things, they all add up. So you add, you're adding quarter second here, quarter second there, you know, third of a second here. You got a second, right? A lap that added up. That made sense. So the reality is, yeah, let's do it again. Third, third, third seconds. That's that's a full. So the reality is, you end up with a second lap. You got ten laps. It's ten seconds. That's how it works. So yeah, I believe it's all of it. But mentally, I was probably, I had come from an era where I think I could have been a top three motocrosser if I got on a works bike, but it didn't. So it's irrelevant. And I maybe I would have won a lot of nationals, but it just, that didn't happen. So I had a chance in ATVs and I gave it everything I had. I mean, when anything, eight times in a row, you have to have excellent support, great machinery, um, a lot of luck. And you better have help from the man above. Uh, I, I can tell you that. He's always been in my life. And the reality, when I look back at my life right now, I think about the motorcycle racing that I got to do and all the great stories that happened that and winning and stuff and the ATVs eight in a row. And then now my RV career that I'm in, I'm blessed. There's no, no two ways about it. It's, uh, it's, uh, I feel the same way. <laughs> 
Good for you. You you deserve it, Larry. You can't um, you can't be as fortunate as I have in my life and in the career I've had without help. No, no, no. I I wonder how Wayne. I mean, you know, I met Wayne Henson. You want to hear a cool story? So yeah, Alan Knowles. We all know Alan. So Alan owns CT Racing, and Alan sponsored me in in quads. And so Knowles at all. They'll say, hey, GD, uh, you know, we're going to go over and do lunch. And, you know, a friend of mine lives down by you. Why don't we go do lunch? You know, it's funny. Terry Varner is calling me right now. How funny is that? So anyway, I'm not answering the phone naturally. But so Knowles and I go to lunch with this guy, and it's Wayne Henson, this Wayne guy. Okay. And so Wayne and I hit it off. We're talking, and he was an old drag racer and you know he loved drag racing and he loved racing in general and his kids rode atvs and wayne rode atvs and so he goes you know i i'd like to help you out you know and here's my number you know and he goes you need to practice bike and i go yeah i'd love to i go i'm trying to race the nationals and this is in 88 so think about this how pivotal this is so i won three nationals in 86 and then we broke like three races then i won the title in 87 but in 87 my first national title i broke my elbow a lot of people don't know that but I was trying to pass Jeff Watts at Iowa, and it was a fast freaking TT track. And I was faster than him, but he'd gotten out front, and I was—I think I got off in third or something, got into second, was behind him. And I went to go outside, inside, and make it, set him up for the next turn. I went a little too close. One of those big, huge tractor tires hit it and threw me off the quad, broke my elbow. Think about this. I climbed back on it. We had such a big lead. I climbed back on the thing and still got like a fit. I rode with a broken elbow and this TT had jumps and it, it, it had double jumps. It's some weird shit in it. So, so anyway, I went home that night. I went home, you know, I went to the hotel and I was in pain, took a bunch of extra strength Tylenol and drank some beers. And next day went to my doctor and he took a, he, he took me to x-ray and he goes, yeah, he goes, I, you know, he sent me to x-ray and I got in there. He goes, I already got set up with an orthopedic surgeon. I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm getting ready to win a national title. And the bonus for Suzuki at that time was, I think a contract was like 30 grand a year. And then it was another 20. So it was like 50 grand, uh, something gnarly like that. No, I, no, you know what? It was 50 plus 30. So I got 50. Yeah, it was what it was. It was $50,000 base salary and 30,000 if I won the title. Now think about that. I made a hundred grand. Oh, wow. I never made real money in my whole life. So ATVs, before I finish this, has given me everything. Everything. It gave me a way to make a great living. It gave me TV time. It gave me magazine time, and it gave me all those eight national titles. I think about that. It's been phenomenal. And there's a lot of people that went into that, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But so anyway, back to the elbow thing. I go home, and and I'm, anyway, the the doctor goes, "Well, wait a minute, you're racing two weeks." He goes, "Well, let me call the surgeon." So I do, and. Or he does, and he goes, well, we can do a, pro a plastic prosthesis, and we think you can race in two weeks. That when it is, yeah. It might have been three weeks, but something like that. So two or three weeks later, I raced a TT, and I raced at Ohio. Now think about it. So I'm going to win my NAS. So the, there's, there was three events left. There was two TTs and a motocross. And the motocross was at Loretta's, and the two TTs were probably in Ohio and Boyd and then Loretta's at the time. So we go to Ohio, I'm winning it. Uh, actually, I bumped Marty Hart, probably your writer at the time, in the first turn. He had the whole shot, but I came in and bumped him. I nerfed him, nerf bar to nerf bar. I got inside him and just smacked him, not a little bit, not a lot, 
didn't crash him, but it was enough to get the whole shot and be gone. And I was winning it, and this this knucklehead that was a that was the the, the referee, the flagger, wouldn't blue flag the riders. So Gentry's all over my ass, and I'm going down the straightaway, and I'm pointing at this guy. I mean, I'm pissed, right? Lap after lap after lap, and you know we probably raced twenty or thirty lap, whatever it was, and it was a small track. Lappers took me out. Gentry won. I got second. Now I got second with broken elbows. So not, you know, or, or a repaired elbow, let's call it. So then the next week I won both. I won the 250 and the 500. We changed the motor and the 500. I, I raced that stupid thing all year long thinking that you could have all this horsepower to 500. And that was the bitching thing to have. Dumb. Dumb. So I didn't put a lot of effort in the 500. Didn't even really like the LT500. It was a big, heavy pig. And we raced two classes back in those years. So I won 250 and 500 at Boyd, sewed up the title, and didn't race the last event at Loretta's. Just went there and signed autographs. How cool is that? That's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, so you have two titles under your belt at that point? No, no. I have one. It's 87. Okay, that was 87. I'm sorry. So, so the next year we go 88. This is a good one, too. I don't count points. Henson sponsors me, gives me a quad. He was just helping me basically with a quad and he, and he loaned me his trailer and parts and he probably worked on the bike a little bit. So he was in the picture a little bit, but he was helping Knowles. I remember seeing Wayne at Loretta's and we went to the mud event. I don't know if you remember that in 88, but all the amateur riders were pissed off about riding in the mud or riding the hill. You remember the track they put on the hill? No, the I don't. Okay. Before me. <laughs> Buddy, they built this. Yo, you, you weren't there yet. Yeah, you weren't on the scene. So 88, they built the track. The, the original motocross track was flooded. Just, I mean, we're talking three foot of mud, two foot of mud, whatever. It had rained buckets. And Big Dave Coombs built this bitchin' all grass terrain track in the campground area at Loretta's. It was, literally, it was phenomenal. And I looked at it and gone, oh, man, I've died and gone to heaven. This was just Beautiful. This is how true motocross should be. And these knuckleheads were calling it a woods race, a hair scrambles. They thought that was the terminology. No, that's true motocross, you goofballs. That's what I would have told them. But when you're you're in that position, you can't really talk to people because it's hard to, you know, they always think it's for your own personal gain. It was for their well-being, actually. But Dave got, Dave Coons got so pissed. He goes, okay. The amateurs bitch so much. He goes, you guys, amateurs, you're riding in, on the regular track and you pros, you're riding on the hill. So we got to ride on this bitching track. And I ended up getting a one-two. Barry McCarty barely beat me in the second moto. We went at it the whole freaking moto. And I tried, man, I tried really, really hard. And I never counted the points. And I thought McCarty had won the title. This is 88. So my mechanic took my number plate off and put it on his. And I'm at the... I'm at the airport flying out of town, and um, this is crazy. Uh, Paul Turner was there, and I said, man, I, I can't believe I, I got beat. I go, it sucks. And he goes, no, you didn't get beat. I go, what do you mean? He goes, no, you won by one point. Well, Paul Turner's the one that told me. So I called the next day, MA, and I can't remember. It might have been Roy Jansen. I think it was. And Roy said, no, you won by one point. How amazing is that? <laughs> so after that i counted the points because i didn't know any better you know what i mean so i counted every point i counted every rider i jotted them down i took i mean you know the technology was limited back then 
and emails were null and void. So you you had to be smarter than the average bear if you wanted to know where you're at, you know. So there you go. Very so the first two years, I barely want What now? Barry was hardworking. Oh, yeah. We talk about it. Barry's a good friend today. We talk all the time. The good guy. He, uh, he's a stud right now. If you've seen him, he's, I told him, I said, hell, if you were in that kind of shape, when you raised me, I said you would have smoked me. He looks really good. He's in really good shape. For a guy in his 50s riding yeah. a motorcycle that good? Yeah. He's un- unbelievable. Yeah, he's an animal. Yeah, he's got more drive and desire. I used to always call him the pit bull because he was like one. You know, he he would muscle through stuff. You know, we talk about different events and stuff. And yeah, he, uh, I think very, very had more better quality machinery. If he stayed on the Suzuki's probably too long, I think he would have, you know, won more races, maybe even titles. He, he really a gifted individual. You know, not to get off of you. Sure. When I was coming in, Barry was still riding the LT 500. Right. And at Boyd, he would go down the straightaway and he'd have hook his foot under the foot peg. And I asked him why he did that. And he says, it's the only way I can keep myself on the, the bike. The what now? He did what? He'd take his foot off and hook it underneath the foot peg. So if he's going left, he would hook it under the straightaway. And it's accelerating so hard, he had to hold himself on the bike. Oh. And he'd have to use his foot underneath the foot peg as wow. leverage to keep him on the to keep him sitting on the machine. Well, should have had a gripper seat or something, but they probably didn't. We probably didn't even have those at that time. We didn't. I think about oh, you didn't have gripper seats back then. No, we didn't know. Uh uh-uh. uh. They came that funny? later in the 90s. Yeah. They weren't even that grippy. <laughs> no. That's funny. Wow. Wow. That's really funny. Yeah. 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 No, all this stuff, you, you start looking at the technology and some of the simplest things are, you know, they're there, but you just don't know. I, I got to call out Alan and Barry because I've reached out to both of them. Yeah. Be on the show. Yeah. And Barry keeps telling me, yeah, 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 I'll do it, I'll do it, but I'm busy. Alan Knowles didn't even return my call. Well, Knowles at all, don't feel bad. He, you're not, he's not selective in that. He it doesn't return my calls either. So, <laughs> you know, you know, the squid, <laughs> you know, there'll be stuff. They'll call me like two weeks, three weeks later kind of a thing. You know, yeah, okay, you know. He, uh, Alan goes, he goes fishing a lot, him and Roxanne. They go up to Mammoth. And they go or June Lake and they take their side by side and they trailer up and they'll go camp and go cruise around just to have a blast doing whatever. So I've been wanting to go do that with him. I got to get a side by side and go do that. But, you know, the problem is like up in the high Sierras right now, you go up there and there was a some type of disease got in all the hatcheries and killed all the, you know, the, the fish. So it's that's happened for the past couple of years. And I've not been able to, yeah, we went up there fishing last year. We didn't catch, I caught one fish. And at that, I was cheating and didn't know it. You, we were in an area, we had to use, you know, it's the middle of the summer, but you had to use barbless hooks and you had to use no bait. So you had to use basically a lure or a fly or something of that nature that was barbless. It's hard enough to catch a trout, let alone that, you know. So plus this, the situation, they weren't stocking. So you're... 
yeah, the Sierras is the most one of my favorite places to go, and so I just I've, I've ventured away from it. it. Actually, right now out in the ocean, the pressure has been so immense that even like on these three quarter day boats, I was just looking at some of the returns on the, the you know the fish count. They're only catching like two and a half three fishes per rod. Can you imagine? And some of them are overnight boats doing that. You know, I'm not I'm much not. of a ocean guy. Right. I mean, I wouldn't mind going camping or, or uh, if I could talk my wife into doing one of the uh, four wheel drive rides where you go off into uh, like Utah or one of those places. Yeah. Take you, uh, you, you actually stay in a hotel yeah. and you might have an overnight camping with a tent somewhere, but to get my wife to do that, uh, probably never going to happen. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, my girl, uh, Renee, I, I just got engaged, by the way. Um, yeah, yeah, thank you. So uh, her and I, we have a motor, we have two motorhomes, but I'm an RV guy because I'm in that industry, but I have a motorhome. We go take it out and we go camp at the beach. We go camp up in the mountains. Uh, we, you know, we have a great time and motorhomes though, are different. I, 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 I'm a, a rep for Forest River, so I rep the Sandstorm Toy Home. So I do that. Um, and it's a great company. It's a Berkshire Hathaway company. And I have some great dealers and toy haulers are cooler in a sense that I, I don't take my motor on that much. And here's why. Look, I got my toys. Uh, I put them on the back of a trailer. Now I'm stuck in the campground. How do I, you, you know what I mean? If I want to go fishing or I want to go, or right. you get my point, right? You got to tow a car if you want to go do something, or you'd have to put a motorcycle on the back. And that's not always so glamorous if it's, you know, I don't know, 50 degrees out, if that makes sense. So, or it's raining. Yeah, so that's why the toy hauler thing, which, you know, is so predominant in the industry. It's, uh, you can put everything in there, you can unhook, get your campsite all set up, and you have your, your tow vehicle as your run-around vehicle. So you can do both. Makes it really nice. And and it, it's a huge advantage uh, in a lot of different ways, being able to do that. Yes. Because when you take the motor home, and you set it up and put the slides out, you're, you're there. You're there. You're there. Yeah. Like my friends all the time go, why don't you, when you go to Mammoth, why don't you, I go, okay, for the amount it cost me the gas to get up there, I'm stuck. I go, we take the car and bust around. Cause I don't have a toy hauler and I don't have a truck. I have an SUV and I have a car. I could have a truck, but that's not what I prefer to drive every day. So a lot of people, guys like trucks, trucks are, you know, pretty, not pretty. They're very popular. And a lot of people like that. So that's cool. Uh, but, you know, I'm older too. So I'm not that young guy anymore. So for me personally, uh, I drive up and I do as you were talking about hoteling. So that works well for me. Now, like but the guys I work with, they all want to go out and do side by side stuff. So we'll go do that in the desert this, this winter. You know, that'll be fun. You know, yeah. go out to Glamis or Gordon's Well or whatever. I'll, I'll enjoy that. You're going to love this one. So what are the odds of this happening? My brother's at Glamis and he's driving his new Talon and uh-huh. he is with a group and he has to stop on a, on an incline. So he sticks this Talon and unbeknownst to him or Jimmy, Jimmy rolls through with his group, sees a guy needing help pulls over to, to, to tow him out and it's Jimmy White and Donnie Luce towing my brother out who's stuck no. in his new oh, town. That's, oh, that's 
funny. That's really funny. Wow. I loved it. I loved it because Jimmy yeah. sent me a photo uh, within seconds of, of this happening. Oh, that's so bitching. You know, I love your brother, Leonard. Tell him I said hi. Uh, I mean, your brother, Lauren Leonard. Uh, you get L and L. It's hard to get you guys straight. Uh, yeah, Lauren was always cool to me. We used to have some great conversations. He's so serious, too. Is he still as serious as ever? Tighter than ever. <laughs> Good for you. Just that's the best. Oh, yeah. You know, you even always worse. look at me. What now? Maybe worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we all went through so much. We had to compete and do all that stuff. I just talked to Arlen, you know, from LRD Racing, and we talked and about his, you know, challenges in life and his business, and it's going well. And and we talked about stuff, and and it's kind of funny. You know, we yeah, he, he told me something today because I invited him because we're gonna have a little party for my my girlfriend's uh, Renee's throwing a party for me for the HOF thing. And what's funny about it was he was telling me that he goes, you know, I don't think anybody. He told me some really nice things, you know, he complimented in a lot of different ways. But he said, I don't think anybody could have had it. He goes, we had a lot of fun. He goes, you know how to have fun, get the most out of the trip. You know, I mean, we did some really cool stuff that I probably can't say on the air. But I mean, we 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 wouldn't have some beers. I'll say this one. We wouldn't have some beers one time. And me and Henson and Arlen and we come out and we were at the Muddy Creek race. Yeah, maybe it was that one or another one. Yeah, it was Muddy Creek. And so we came out and there's this drunk dude that was in the front of the, the bar and Wayne goes, look at that drunk, man. He's a little drunk passed out over the steering wheel. I go, where at? And he goes right there. So I had to rent a car and I pulled up to him and I go, what are you doing? And I ran into him with the rent a car and I, I was about a foot and a half back and I hit him. Bam. Now think about it. It's a drunk guy over the steering wheel passed out. Now, all of a sudden it's like he crashed. So the guy hits the brake, I wake him up. He hits the brake. And we back up, I back up and then drive out. <laughs> and, and Arlen was laughing so hard. He goes, that's the rudest thing I've ever seen anybody do. The guy still had his foot on the brake as we drove out. Is that the best? <laughs> yeah, we used, to, we used to have some fun. You know? oh, Gary, 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 Gary. Yeah. <laughs> Who was the most fierce competitor out of all your years, who was the one guy that was the, the burr in your saddle? You know, I've been asked that before. And, and, and let me explain to you. I, I can't, it's not political. I can't answer. Because, God, remember, well, here's why. We raced TT and we raced motocross and we raced Mickey. So you want to just take the nationals. We still raced TT and raced moto. And every year it was somebody different, usually. Think about it. And the guy might have been there two years. Right. Yeah, I, I won eight years. but. I can tell you this. This is crazy. Here, here's some kudos to these guys. I, when you asked me to do this, I had to dethrone Rodney Gentry for the title. He was a, he won the first title in 86. So I do, I went in 87. And I don't have the years, but far, far dethroned me. I didn't win my ninth. So he won his first, which would have been my ninth. So I'd won my eighth. Far won a title. Gus won a title. Natalie Spader hit bird and gentry all of them. so there's seven guys right here that became national champions and i raced against all of them so which one do you give kudos to you see my point right oh. it was a stacked field i mean the guys were so good and if you were off a little bit you got your ass whipped or you you had a dnf i can remember one year 89 Knowles was sponsoring us and 
that was the first Wayne jumped in. He was there with me every year, Ace, and from then on, he was all the rest of the titles. And we went to Wolf Creek, and we broke a chain. We used a half link on the chain because we were doing that, trying to get the bike long or short or right in the right area to get tractability. We didn't know. And the half link was weak. It was, a, it was the weak link. <laughs> no pun intended, right? Actually, pun intended, maybe. So it it broke, and you know, we learned something. We never did that again. In in we only use those in TT, but so I remember telling Knowles we're driving to the airport, and I go, I'm I got pissed. I'm so pissed. And we're drinking a couple of beers driving to the airport. And I said, you know what? I'm gonna tra-. we had a month to train. And I worked. You, you can't imagine how hard I worked to go win those next two events. And I don't even know if I won the next two and won the title. And I'm pretty sure I won the moto and I won the TT. I think I won both. But at Loretta's, because to, to, I gave up a bunch of points to Charlie Shepard. How gnarly is that, right? And I was in such gnarly shape. I think I got off in like seventh or eighth both motos. I don't know why, but I got bad starts. And I came through the pack and I won the races. I mean. I was just in way better shape than everybody, but I was mentally driven. I was pissed off that it happened and that I had an opportunity to win my third title at the time. And it may not happen. You, you know what I mean? So I had to do everything I could do physically, mentally, machine wise. And, and Wayne and Alan prepped the bikes and they were Knowles was doing the motors at the time. And that Wayne was the tuner. And we tested a lot. We did a lot of testing together. And the bikes were just bitching and I, uh, they stayed together and I won the title. So there's stuff like that. I mean, when you start going through these years, it's like, wow, you know, I mean, it's insane. And in your last season, was there a mental drag or, or a relief when it was over? Talking about like 95. Yeah, your last or 90, 90s. I, I I retired like in ninety seven. You talk about then? Um, no, when you lost your when you lost the number one plate. You know, yeah, because I, you got to remember, I was getting up there in age, and I wanted to have a business life. I mean, racing was my business, but it was a business that was going bankrupt mentally. <laughs> Does that make sense? As well as monetarily. Think about that. Yes, yes. So think about that. I do. In other words, mentally, you have to be there if you don't have the drive and desire to do it anymore. And I can tell you where it happened when I first started wanting to get off the boat. In other words, retire. I was at Wolf Creek. And they had these stupid jumps. That that knucklehead, Ted Williams. What a knucklehead he was. Okay, and I say that because he wouldn't listen to me. He got a lot of amateur riders hurt. And I'll say that on air. Uh, I, I and, he, and he tried to make it like I couldn't do all the triples. Like I was afraid. I, I they raced thirty minute. I think Dottie Banks got us to race thirty minute plus two lap motos, and I smoked them by so much. I was in really good shape that year, and it had nothing to do with the jumps. You understand? So when you're a multi champion and you say something, it's always for you. You know what I mean? I mean, give me a break. I was the problem was that amateurs are going to. Go try to do the jumps that we do, and these young kids are going to hurt themselves. And Harold uh, Bumpy B. Goodman was one of them to go to the hospital because they're trying to do these peaked doubles and triples. But I was looking at the jump, 
and I had one, and they used to race us a moto a day, you know, each day. And so to keep the spectators there and I'm looking at my hands are blistered and I'm looking at this triple jump and it's freaking a ways. It's like not much run up, like and you got to go. And it's about 80 feet, maybe 70. I don't know, but it's peaked. It's like a 10 foot peak Teton jump. You know what I mean? It's like, if you don't make the third jump, you're 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 deft, okay? <laughs> you're dead. And I think to myself, this is stupid. I'm the guy. I just smoked everybody, you know. And I, and maybe it wasn't. You know what? I smoked in the motor before because so it's the second moto. So the back then we raced them all on Sunday. That's what it was. So so anyway, I'm thinking to myself, what's wrong with this picture? Wow, I need to get a new job. You know what I mean? So the handwriting was on the wall. You know. Can I do all the jumps? Yeah. Am I fast enough? Yeah. By far that, that day, not every day, just that day. Okay. But the point was, I knew that I needed to find something else to do. So I was fortunate, you know, when, when Timmy beat me that day, I actually would have went on with my ninth title, but the front end locked up. Now, my fault that I was in that position going into Loretta's again. So I should have got beat. But looking back in retrospect, I, I was walking the track after that. We went and looked at the caliper, and there was it, the caliper was bent, and the there was a, it was scarred really bad. What happened is I went to go do that big table they have in the middle of the track. I had passed Bader. He got the whole shot. I passed him and was pulling away, and it locked the front end and threw me off. And I didn't know why. I thought, well, maybe I just impacted the jump, but it was something that happened. Nobody's fault. I had had a lot of luck. It went my way for eight years. I was happy. Okay, but. After that, I couldn't ride. You know, I rode that moto and got fifth or sixth or eight. I don't even know what, but I knew I couldn't win the title. So I just gave up. So it was a relief at that point. It wasn't a relief at that. I shouldn't say that year was a relief. The next year after that, after probably I got home and really let it sink in. And then I started working for the RV company, I think in 96. And that was a little company that was three million, doing $3 million a year as a toy hauler company it's called Weekend Warrior. A lot of people thought, oh, God, it was always a huge company. No, it was an eight-year company, only doing $3 million. And we went from $3 million to $7 million. I used to use it like a racetrack. It was competition. It was my new racetrack when I got an actual job. So we went from $3 million to $7 million the first year. And we went all the way to $240 million and, I don't know, 1,500 employees. So it was we built the number one toy haulers in the country, and we had a blast doing it. And we got to sponsor the, the ATV Nationals and give away a trailer every year. We gave away uh, trailers to the top privateer in Supercross. It was cool. I mean, it was it, we got to get back. It was just the coolest thing ever. I mean, we were a part of it in a different way. So you, you raced, but you weren't racing on the track any longer. Yeah. 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 Have you sat back and missed it to the point where you had the desire to go race again? Well, I did. I, 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 tried, I tried to race motorcycles in, in 16. Varner talked me into riding dirt bikes. And of course, I, I always like riding them. So it's what I started out on. So we went to REM. And what was cool about it was the camaraderie. That's the thing about racing. There's great camaraderie in the RV industry. but there's nothing like moto, ATV. I mean, it is cool. All the guys I used to race with, and you got magazine guys like Jody Weisel, MXA, or you've got 
uh, Ron Lawson from Dirt, Dirt Bike. Those guys are all there. So these are the editors. And there's other guys that show up there too. And then you got top pros and you got a bunch of pros that we used to race with. And they're all our age, all 50, 60 years old. So I went back, we started racing and I raced as an alias on a dirt bike. And I raced as a, my, you want to hear my alias? Well, my, <laughs> my alias was Tobias McFloyd. That's what I signed up as Tobias McFloyd. And you would say, well, why'd you do that? Because I didn't want to have a bullseye on my track. I didn't, on my back. I didn't want people riding around the track and take, try to take me out. And I'm just trying to learn how to ride again. Because you really do forget. They always say, like, get on a bicycle. Once you've ridden one, you never forget. No, no. Yeah, you do. <laughs> I forgot how to brake slide. I mean, give me a break. So I, I didn't have any stamina. I could only last a lap or two. And I hadn't ridden anything for 10 or 15 years. So I, you know, I'd ridden, but not, you know, like this. So I, so I started writing more and more and more and <clears throat> it was cool because i started getting faster and i could win the 40 intermediate or 50 intermediate and then i got to where i could win the 50 intermediate or four, uh, 40 intermediate guys and i was getting to where i could beat them i could beat the 50 expert guys but you had the 50 expert and what they call the elite which is the top in that age group was on the same line and i didn't want the race as a 50 expert and let the 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 elite guys beat me does that make sense i just wanted to get squid so and i was riding a i don't know a 10 year old bike it was a 2006 250 it wasn't even a 450 so the 450s are worth honest numbers about four or five seconds a lap a squid can smoke you around a corner i mean you can go in harder and whatever and he'll be gone coming off the turn and jump all the jumps and, you know, that kind of thing because the power is so immense. But I, I, I rather ride a slower, easier bike to ride, to learn. So I did that. And then I, I fell off and I hurt my back and I, cr I cracked my L1 and I thought I moved my legs. So then on the track, I was trying to get around a guy for the 40 intermediate win. And I went to pass him on the first lap and the thing swapped out really bad. It pitched me. And when I tried to crawl off the track, I went, ow. And then I tried again, and I went, ow again. And I said, oh, shit, I broke my back. So I moved my legs, moved my arms, because that's the thing that we always think about. Paralysis, death, those things, right? Severe injury or death in racing. So I just crossed my arms and said, thank you, thank you, Jesus. And said, all right, cart me out of here. So they did, and I was in the hospital two days. And they said, you're okay. And so in Two months, my I just wore a back brace for I think six weeks or something. It wasn't that big a deal. And once again, man, Bob blessed me, so I was fortunate. And that's I know I still got ride, and I play with my grandkids, but no racing, none of that. I decided I want to hike. I want to run when I want to. I want to hike when I want to. I want to walk normal when I want to. You know what I mean? Yeah. And all these things, I like fishing. I like hiking i like all these things and you can't do them if you're maimed in some way shape or form i've broken a lot of bones a lot of people don't realize i've broken about 14 bones in my life I had two operations one on my shoulder one on my elbow one was atvs one was dirt bike so different stuff most of my injuries were well shoot all of them except for the one on my elbow were all in dirt bikes pretty common to fall down once or twice on a weekend on a dirt bike quads they're pretty dang safe relatively when you look at you know how hard it is to really jump off one yeah 
advice to the younger riders coming? I don't know. You just got to have fun, you know, and, and I think some of these, we'll call them mini dads, and, you know, they get these young kids and they want their kid to be a champion or race like a champion or be as fast as one. And the reality is have fun with your, have fun with your kids, make it a family thing. And if kids got enough ability, then support them, give them good equipment, but don't give them too much equipment before you can handle it. A lot of the parents want to give kids too much machine too soon. And that's a major mistake. I mean, let these kids go have a good time. Progress to your level. C rider, B rider, A yes. rider. Yes. I can't tell you how many great, great. So they take a kid from a C and they run him all the way to an A because hell, he's getting hurt in the C because he's getting run into. Are you kidding me? Let the kid have his wins. If he can't win in the C and then the B and then the A, then he, he, he should be racing. I can't tell you how many of them do that. They want to brag to their friends more so than be safe with a kid. That's a mistake. I agree. I, I wish that when they made a C class and they made a B class, mm-hmm. they would put limits on the machine modifications, uh, maybe motor mods, maybe suspension yeah. mods to keep the, the entry level, the entry level. Um, maybe even into the A class before you can go into the pro class, you have to spend so much time in an A division because I don't think that the guys that transition from a stockish machine in the C class and they go to the B class and they buy suspension and a motor and now they have a pro-am level machine that they're still not qualified to ride. No, those machines are so gnarly. I, I'll give you a little story. I, I, I went to one of the magazines back in the day. I was doing the trailer thing, and it had been probably about 10 years. I want to say it was 04, 06. I think it was 06. You know, I was thinking about the car I had. Yeah, it was like 06. So we go to Glen Helen, and I'm going to say Doug Gust was riding a Suzuki, and it, it, was, it was Yoshimura. They're right here in Chino. They're friends of mine. And the magazine wanted me to ride the do a magazine, you know, test, you know, me riding the bike. So I said, okay, great. I'll go out there and jump on it. So I showed up and I had to find my riding gear and okay. And I rode some still at that point, but so I, but I hadn't ridden quads, I ridden motorcycles. So I jumped on the thing and it was faster than hell. What I noticed about the four stroke, it hooked everywhere. I mean, it was tractability. You could jump any, and what you'll love this Leonard. So there was a section in the back part of the track and I didn't watch any of the pros practice. I watched nothing. It was Glenn Helen. ATV National. And so they had a tabletop and it was probably, oh, I don't know, probably 80 or 100 feet, but there wasn't much run and you had to curve and kind of jump it. I tell you what, buddy, I was jumping 90 feet of it and I, or 90% of it, and I could have jumped 100% of it and then landed in the corner. It was like a left hand turn right after it. But I was thinking, I don't know. I don't, I haven't ridden enough. So I'm so sure that's a smart thing to do. Right. But I wanted to, I mean, I'm jumping literally at the edge of it and then jumping off and into the corner and I'm just playing around. Anyway, I, I, I wasn't sure what the, the pro riders were doing. I had no idea. Now remember I'm jumping 90% of this tabletop, you know, or I'm jumping 90 feet or something. Well, what's funny is, I went to watch the next day. I wanted to watch the race and, and 
I'm not taking anything away from the guys, but it's just funny, you know, because remember mentality is we talked about this. So I had no idea what anyway. So I woke up that morning, first off, and I'm old because I woke up and my neck is kinked from me riding that quad and doing those stupid jumps. Right. And my body wasn't shape anymore. And so it kinked my neck. So I had put Bengay on it. So I go to the truck and my half hanging my head to the side a little bit. And I'm watching the guys and I go to that section and they're jumping like 60% of this thing. So I know right there, that was probably a second in that section. If I cleared it, I know it's second and a half. So it's kind of funny. That's just mental. That wasn't, they couldn't do it, but you understand, right? Yep. It was just ignorance on my part thinking, not knowing any better. That's what ignorance is. Right. So the reality is when I look back on that, it's pretty funny. <laughs> I thinking, Hey, I could just jump into the corner. You know, now I don't know if the bike would have handled suspension wise. Denton wouldn't have, he'd have been on the ground because my body couldn't have hung in there. But mentally, I know I could have done that corner. You know what I mean? Yep. How funny is that? So you've ridden the two stroke yeah, and you've ridden the four stroke. Do you understand why the riders make it through older now versus on the two-stroke stuff? Say it again. What, I, okay, what do you, what do you ask? I mean, I understand two-stroke, four-stroke. What do you ask? the four-stroke and you've ridden the two-stroke, right. and now everybody's on the four-strokes. Is it a little more understanding why the older guys are doing so well? Well, I would think so. Yeah, because I, I, I got to think that, see, two strokes, you're always fighting for tractability. So on the four stroke, you're not fighting for tractability anymore. Um, I got to think they're way more forgiving due to that fact. I mean, you know, you're not fighting to put the power to the ground. So the other thing is, too, if you go back and there's no, there's there's a production frame rule, right? Yes. So we were getting into, they weren't works bikes, but they were getting into heading that way in a sense, if that makes sense. They were pretty exotic. I think that, I think if you had to talk about, you know, the 2001, 2002, 2003 seasons, um, maybe back into the 2000s, they were works bikes. Yeah. I mean, center cases were stock and, and everything else was aftermarket. Right, right, right. So so that makes sense why the older guys can get in there because they know how to ride and the machinery is allowing them to keep up with their speed. But I don't know, you know, when I look back about it, I you know, I had I had one of a pulp, I don't know, what is it called? Uh, pulp MX. They I think it's Steve. I, I know that guy from when he was young. How funny is that, right? <laughs> so he picked me up at the airport in Minnesota one time, him and his dad, and I raced a quad race there. I raced, I think, a dirt bike and a quad. He told me about it, and we, I think I won both. But the point is, he asked me about MX guys being able to, motorcycle guys being able to do anything, and do I think that's true with quad guys? And I told him that I think I, I think Wienan or Hedrick could hold their own against the other guys. And I, I almost told that Hedrick was riding with one of the top Supercross guys, I forget his name right now, Brayton. And Brayton said he was legit. But the point is, I said, how do you know that if they didn't pick Moto, they wouldn't do whatever? And then I I forgot about Barry Hawk. Barry Hawk was an incredible rider, incredible talent. Barry Hawk won all those GNC races. 
UNCC races and then went on, on quads and then went and run one of them all on dirt bikes. So there's an opposite oxymoron. You know what I mean? When you look at it, think about that one. He's the only guy. Yeah. So, so you never know when there's that guy, anybody can beat you. It's just easy out there riding with you. You know, you, that's the reality of life. You know, there's somebody out there so gifted that, you know, you go, wow, who's that guy? I used to have, see it happen in moto all the time. I didn't see it happen in ATV racing, but, but then again, it's not that it wasn't impossible because it can be, you know? So, but I, I don't really know the complete answer Leonard to what you're asking, but I know that guys progress, you know, I think they're probably a little bit older on the, probably on the quads, but I don't know, you know, realistically, I know that I was faster when I was younger on the quads I had to work harder. I couldn't train as hard. Your body doesn't last as long. I mean, that's a, that's a fact. I, I, I couldn't train at the level I wanted to. That was another reason why I retired. I couldn't train. Like at the end, I was riding one moto twice a week. I would ride one 30-minute moto twice a week. And I would, I would swim rather than run because it was too hard on my body. I would swim laps in the pool. I would do jump rope and I would lift weights, but not as much as I used to. I was getting to where, and you would say, why not? Were you lazy? No, my body wouldn't repair itself well enough to where when I got to the weekend, I could perform without being tired already. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Do you think the advances in food and supplements have changed that for the riding uh, well, competitors? Well, well, absolutely. There's an answer. There's so much more technology for the body now. So nutrition and all those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you think that there's illegal substances being used? Um, I don't think there is in ATV racing, but in motor racing. Yeah. Yeah. But I think there are, you know, the, I, I, when you say illegal, I think it's, let's call them PEDs, define illegal. So I don't really know that. So who am I to say that? Huh? Performance enhancing drugs. Yeah, that's what that stands for. Because the reality is, and I love moto, okay, but the reality is you cannot ride for 30 minutes wide open or 20 minutes wide open or 18 minutes wide open, get off the bike, wipe your face, and it looks like you walk through the mailbox attack and not be breathing. Hard. And there's not a lot of testing in that, in that area, but more power to them. I mean, the racing is amazing. I mean, it's, let's face it. If you look at the moto moto races, the ATV races, in my opinion, they're the best best shows on earth. They're bitching. You, you don't think the advancement in training techniques has gotten riders in 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 a conditioning a conditioned level that maybe we didn't understand to an extent. To an extent, but I think there's also other things enhancing their ability to stay. Um, to stay at such a high level for so many laps. Absolutely. I raced my whole life. I, I used to be able to, Leonard, I used to be able to run five and a half minute miles for six, seven miles in the heat of the day. Do the math. That's, that's a freaking sprint. Now, was I best runner in the world? No, I wasn't. But I was pretty good. <laughs> so, so, you know, when you look back, I'll tell you something that was odd with me that I don't know if some of these writers know. Um, this is this is a problem I had, and I wasn't aware that I was foolish to it. 
the when we would start the season off and go to the race, the beginning races at the Mickey Thompson events at night, and it would be cold. I would, I would tighten up. You know why? Because I couldn't breathe. You ever jump into cold water? Yep. And you know how it takes the air out of your takes the breath away. Well, what do you think it does when it's cold air? Yep. It's the same thing. I think you could probably make something to bring breathe warm air in and help you in those events at night where it didn't hurt you. It's got to be hurting some of those guys or effect, uh, affecting them in certain ways, and they don't even know it. But that's technology that will come around, you know, at some point probably. I didn't know I had that issue. I don't perform as well at in cold weather as I did in hot bleaching, you know, hot weather, you know, or let me see, restate that, scorching hot weather. Make sense? So you performed, you had trouble in the cold, but yet sometimes when it was too hot, you had trouble as well? No, no. I was fine when it was hotter, the better. I was fine. Yep. Yep. So the cold weather, it, 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 it you know, didn't allow me to do what I wanted to do. I noticed with the cold weather, no, I never was a caliber of rider like yourself, but I know that when I was riding, when it was cold, my, my joints, my body just wouldn't move the way I needed it to right. perform until you get 30 minutes in. And, you know, with, with the off-road stuff that I did um, or the desert racing, you know, you started the starting line was 26 degrees and uh, your first section was 40 miles. And you're like, <laughs> you, you still can't move at the end of the 40 miles because you're still frozen or your muscles still haven't haven't given you the power that it needs to. Um, so the cold that, is always my nemesis. In that kind of weather, I, I can't imagine. You know, I, I tell you at Mickey Thompson events, we'd sit around for, it was crazy. We would sit around for three hours for the yep. main event to come around, race the heat, and, or we'd sit around for uh, three, I'm sorry, three hours for the heat, heat race to come around. I would always go and I would take deep heating rub and rub my forearms all the way up into my biceps. And I would wash my hands to make sure they're clean. So I'm not putting this stuff in my eyes and I put soap and soap them all up. And I would do that at least 15, 20 minutes before the race. And then my muscles would be heated up because think about it. You're completely tight, completely cold. And then you jump on the bike. That's why you see these moto guys sitting on the, the bicycle and riding so they're not all tight. Yep. So they're smart. Basketball football players, soccer yeah. players, so many athletes, you know, get to do those things now. Right. Uh, that that you, you, you just didn't do back earlier in our careers because uh, it, it just wasn't something that, that you talked about. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of biased. I was very fortunate. I got to work with Doug Eichner for um, 13 years, um, and the guy was tough as nails. Mm-hmm. Um, his training regimen wasn't what it needed to be, but his just sheer tenacity to just never quit was uh, something that. I haven't found since I stopped working with him. I haven't found another guy with that much just 
selfless desire to put his body through rigorous pain to win uh-huh. and it didn't matter yeah no i remember racing him at the cow palace i want to say it was somewhere when i first met him i thought who's this guy he's fast and <laughs> i think we we're at some arena cross and i think we had the bike real soft and it was a buddy of mine david taylor wayne henson and David's not with us anymore. He passed uh, this year earlier. God bless him. But uh, old motocross buddy I knew since we were in 15. Anyway, we went up there and I got smoked the first night because the bike was too soft and stuff. And I got a bad start. And I go, okay, that's it. And we stiffened the bike up, made a bunch of changes. And I went out and won the next night. But yeah, that's I, that's when I met Ike. He was all an ass. And he might have won that first night. Yeah, he's fast. And he was like a, he, at that time, he was a nobody. Yep. You know, we're always... All of us are nobody until we become somebody, whatever that means in racing. But it's factual until everybody goes, "Oh, that guy, right?" You know. So he was one of those, "Oh, that guy," and that was I, you know. Well, he made his way in his own in his own way. Yeah. You know, racing a, a lot more endurance style stuff where it was long distance um, because he didn't get tired. I mean, he was just a machine. Yeah, neat guy. How's he doing now? Have you talked to him? Yeah, he lives in Arizona, uh, just bought a house over there. Uh, him and his son moved over. He got tired of the California life and uh, wanted to change and told us, um, he told us like last October, hey, guys, I, I'm moving to Arizona. Oh, okay, Doug, no problem. Yeah, yeah whatever. Yeah. It, he was there in December. Wow. Yeah, he just he didn't mess around. He figured it out and did yeah. it. And, and what's he doing for a living uh he's still a welder he's still welder. Good, good for him you know yeah he's a good guy I, I wish him the best he's a really neat guy I, I i got to see him at the sand sports show and we talked about he was telling me he's welding at the time i think he's working for you guys and yeah as many years back but he looked good and always same old doug always happy you know uh yeah he's he, he is he's just he hasn't changed since I've since I met him, and yeah. I met him. I started working with him in '93, or no, '92, '92, '93, and uh, I worked with him the day that he walked in the door. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's amazing. That's yeah, that's so, amazing. You know, we've had it. We've had our tough times, but but still, I would consider him one of my one of my closest friends in the world, you know, if I called mm -hmm. him and needed something and he'd jump in the truck and drive over here. You know, I mean, I had a live show for the podcast and he came, drove from Arizona, you know, uh, and, and came and sat down with me and talked with me. And I thought, uh, you know, only a friend would drive six hours yeah. to have a 30 minute conversation for yeah. me. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's like, yeah, I can see that. in him. he's a great guy. Gary, I want to thank you so much for taking some time with me. Um, I know that there's so much more that we could talk about, um, but my people have put me on time constraints. I'm not allowed to run shows too long. I know that sounds horrible, but I think we could sit here and talk all night. But the, the, the fans uh, like shorter, shorter spurts. Um, I would like to see and uh, invite you to come back another time. I know that we already have something in the books. that's going to be kind of special for everybody. I don't want to spoil it here. Sure. But um, 
again, a, a solo time that we could talk more about your career and some of your great accomplishments. That'd be fantastic. I appreciate you having me on it. Uh, you got a special show here and I can see why the fans like it so much. Brother, it's all about you guys. It's it's not me. It's all about <laughs> the, the, the great people that have created our industry. And you're one of those guys. And uh, you'll always be at the top of the list of, of one of the all-time greatest. And uh, I know we could dissect that a million different ways, but eight-time national champion, eight consecutive time national champion puts you um, definitely at the leaderboard. Thank you, Leonard. Really appreciate that. And congratulations about the Hall of Fame. I know we didn't even hardly, we didn't even barely talk about it. That's, a, that's such a huge accomplishment and an accolade that you've deserved, that our industry's deserved. And it couldn't be, it couldn't happen to a better guy to, to take you and put you in there. Well, thank you so much. There's a lot of people that, that voted me in and I'm blessed. I mean, there's the Coombs family, Racer Productions, uh, the Jansen family. Uh, the, the Richie family, we talk about Red Bud, we're one of the votes, uh, you know, the, one of the iconic tracks, um, the Dirt Diggers Hangtown. I mean, Bob Messer called me and said, hey, we're voting for you. I mean, Brock Glover texted me. He voted for me. Warren Reed. I mean, I, I, Moto Buddies. I mean, these guys are icon gods, you know, in the moto world. And to have them all vote for me and have your peers vote for you. I'm blessed. I was blessed to be, I told David Coombs, I was blessed to just be on the, on the ballot and be recognized and didn't expect it to get in. And he said, no, you're getting in. I can't say enough about the Coombs family. I, I love them. I, I can see big Dave Coombs on the, on the tractor right now. And, uh, getting off of the stogie and saying, Denton, how do you like the track? And give me a handshake. And, uh, you know, Rita and Carrie Joe and Timmy, they're, they're all the best. I mean, Without those people, racing would be nothing, really, in my opinion. I agree. I agree, brother. Gary, again, thank you so much, and uh, we'll get you back on the show. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. Hold on for me. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at atvtalkpodcast.com. to you by Take-Two Custom Tees. Screen printing experience that is dedicated to quality and customer service every time. San Diego's Body Evolution and Wellness Center. With over 17 years experience, Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs and Coach TJ looking out after all your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org, or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. Duncan Technologies International. More than 33 years in the industries building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all the available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk News. See you next time.